On today's episode of DPS, the public ownership series plows ahead. My guest today believes that the best way to handle our housing crisis that we face in today's society is to, wait for it, socialize the land underneath the house. It's a really innovative idea. I think you guys are going to love this. Stay tuned. Welcome, everybody, to today's episode of DPS. I'm your host, as always, Adam Proctor, and we are plowing ahead, continuing along with our public ownership series. We have done a number of episodes at this point, at least five, maybe six episodes on public ownership and democratic self-management in society. Everybody should go back and check out those previous episodes if you've missed any of them, because today's episode, we're going to be building on those themes Quite explicitly, we're going to be talking about a recent report that came out advising the UK Labour Party. It's called Land for the Many. It was co-authored by a number of researchers and think tankers and doers, if you will, Corbynites and those associated with that project in the United Kingdom. George Monbiot was one of the co-authors, one of the head researchers involved in that project. He introduces this Land for the Many policy platform uh, as such. And if this is really apt, I wanted to quote this in full to kick off the episode to to lay out the stakes of what we're going to be discussing here. George writes, Dig deep enough into many of the problems this country faces, and you will soon hit land. Soaring inequality and exclusion, the massive cost of renting or buying a decent home, repeated financial crises sparked by housing asset bubbles, the collapse of wildlife and ecosystems, the lack of public amenities, the way land is owned and controlled underlies them all. Yet, it scarcely features in political discussions. And man, that really hit home when I read it. It's so true. If you dig deep enough, land is at the heart of so many of the problems and challenges that we face today. So we're going to discuss this topic head on. My guest today is one of the co-authors of that report. He previously co-authored a book, that really informed that report in many ways called Rethinking the Economics of Land and Housing. He also has a piece out in Tribune and Jacobin Magazine that we're going to discuss called The Unmaking of the British Working Class. In addition to that, he is an economics editor at Open Democracy and a research associate at the UCL Institute for Innovation and Public Purpose. Corbinite, uh, economist, thinker and doer, Laurie McFarland. Thanks for joining us on DPS. Great to be here. So your book that you co-authored some years ago called Rethinking the Economics of Land and Housing really set the stage for this report called Land for the Many. And for those of you who are not sort of in the day-to-day hustle and bustle of the British press, you might have missed it. Uh, that report, Land for the Many, caused quite a stir. You got quite a number of people in the mainstream media and particularly the Tories. Uh, you got their panties in a wad, didn't you? You got them in a bunch. You, uh, you're you trying to, to, to squeeze them until, what is it, the pip, the pip squeaks? S- squeeze squeeze the, the landowners until the pip squeaks, <laughs> as they said in the post-war la- labor era. What was the reaction to that land for the mini policy? Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, on the one hand, we were obviously to some extent expecting a hostile reception from elements of the right-wing tabloid press in, the, in this country 
home ownership in particular and housing is very much a sensitive issue in this country. We've got this culture where people are in many ways obsessed with um, with home ownership. And we're expecting, you know, the usual kind of attacks from the right wing press, um, similar kind of attacks that any moderate Labour government or opposition has, has tried to float in, in recent years. But I think this time around, what was quite astonishing is just how hard they went on the report, but also for how long. You know, months after the report was published, there were still extremely, you know, scaremongering, really quite extreme pieces being published in places like the Daily Mail, uh, the Daily Telegraph, headlines like, Labour has proposed nothing less than a complete abolition of private property, uh, was one. Another one saying uh, Jeremy Corbyn's latest proposal is straight from the Marxist playbook. You know, all this kind of stuff really, really... um, putting the frighteners into readers that basically Jeremy Corbyn is coming to steal your house, be scared. And they kind of built and built and built over the weeks and months until eventually there was a there was a front page of the Daily Mail. So the, the Daily Mail being one of the biggest newspapers in the country also runs the Mail Online, which is one of the biggest news websites in the world. Uh, front page of that attacking this report. So it certainly got them worried. I think it's an exciting report as a committed democratic socialist myself. Uh, this is a socialist podcast. We are unabashed about that and uh, desiring and, and working towards thinking through the implications of a socialist transition. And so I welcome all of those, uh, all of those possibilities, the abolition of private property, uh, the, the, you know, the, the implementation of uh, all of the things that Marx ever hoped and dreamed for. And yet this report, as exciting and as radical as it is, falls well short of that, doesn't it? It's actually the reason it's, – it's, it's a quite reasonable approach, I think, to some of the problems that we're faced because you're not actually talking about you know, gathering up all property under the, you know, under the control of the state. You're talking about something much more focused and I think that's what's so exciting about this policy and why it holds so much promise as a socialist, non-reformist reform uh, that I talk about on this show quite a bit. So what is in the report? What, what are some of the, some of the suggestions and uh, some of the ways that you, you delve into to this very thorny problem of, of land and management and all of the implications that I laid out at the opening of the show? Sure. Yeah. I mean, it, you're absolutely right to say that obviously the report – in some senses, it's quite pragmatic. This is very much a report that is informing – the Labour leadership on the expectation that there will be a Labour government in the country soon. Looking very much practically at what can a Labour government do practically in order to address some of these problems. So on the one hand, many of the recommendations in the report are kind of like common sense proposals that because of the UK's really bizarre history for various different reasons, you know, we've never had a proper revolution. We still have all these archaic hangovers from bygone eras, the aristocracy, and our land ownership is very, very backwards in the rules around that. So some of the some of the proposals are just common sense that actually aren't really an issue in most in most countries. So things like around transparency around well who actually owns the land in, in this in, in our country, which actually in the UK uh, we actually often don't know. Sometimes it's people who've owned land for thousands and thousands of years, you know, people who maybe whose great, 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 great granddad murdered someone on behalf of the king, you know, and they still hold on to it. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's lots of kind of common sense things like that. But in amongst these common sense proposals, there are also some seeds of, um, I think, what are potentially quite radical uh, proposals in which plant the seeds for something, uh, you know, a much more radical kind of political economy around land. The overarching aim, though, of the report, we set out the basic diagnosis of the role of land in 
modern financialized capitalism like like the UK. Because I think one of the key problems that certainly we have in this country, and you may have the same issue in the US, is that for a long time when people talk have talked about land, they have this image in their head of just farming, agriculture, or something that was maybe important in pre-industrial times. But in the age of you know, modern capitalism, space travel, the iPhone, land really isn't isn't that important anymore. So we wanted we wanted to set out to make it clear that actually land is at the heart of many, many of the issues that we face in modern capitalism, like housing, like environmental breakdown, like uh, booms and busts that we face in the economy. And then a key development in recent decades has been the interaction of our land economy with what's been happening in the financial sector, with the liberalisation of the financial sector, with deregulation, we've kind of created this feedback loop, this feedback system between the financial system uh, and land, which is often held, held as collateral in, in the form of loans. So we've ended up with this hyper-financialised land and property system in the UK. And that's that's had the effect, lots of different effects. One of the most pernicious effects is by dramatically uh, increasing inequality by putting that dividing line that always exists through society between those who own property and those who don't, but kind of putting that on steroids. Because on the one hand, those who do own property, you know, house prices go up, land prices go up. That's huge windfall gains in terms of wealth. For those who don't own property, that means higher rents in the rental market. That means being locked out of ever being able to own somewhere. Um, it means having to save up more for a deposit, for a mortgage and, and all this kind of stuff. So a core explicit aim of, of the, a, a series of the proposals that we have is to gradually de-financialize the land and housing market. So if you like, take it out of the whims of the of the market and through various different forms, bring it under more democratic control, stabilize house prices, allow wages to catch up, end this end this kind of casino that we have in, in land and property. And so in that, in that area, we've got lots of different things like tax reform, reform of uh, the banking sector, financial regulation, all that kind of stuff that really needs to happen anyway. One of the things that's quite exciting that we that we propose is um, reforms to things like compulsory purchase order. So I think in the US, I think you guys call that eminent domain. So the idea that the government can can purchase things compulsorily, which often that kind of freaks people out. Again, that's something that we got uh, attacked on a lot is saying, oh, you know, they want to come and steal all your property. When, of course, the governments around the world, most most governments have always operated regimes of, of compulsory purchase. It's just that often they've been used to benefit uh, corporations and developers, etc., rather than the common good. And so we propose reforms to compulsory purchase to make it uh, easier to build social public housing. We also propose a mechanism called compulsory sale orders, which involves any land or property that is being that is being sat empty or vacant or derelict for a certain amount of time. Uh, the owner is forced uh, to sell it, can't just hold on to it and wait wait to make speculative gains on it. And we also propose something called community right to buy. And this is something that's actually modelled on what's already been introduced in Scotland for a number of years, uh, which basically gives communities who are interested, uh, who are interested in doing this, the right to buy land from a landowner that owns the land in the area and get public funding to do that. And when combined with a compulsory sale order, for example, that's quite a powerful mechanism of, of getting rid of, of private absentee land, landowners. And in Scotland, this was introduced originally uh, in rural areas. So in, in Scotland, there's a historic problem of huge, huge concentration of land. 
Um, so about 400 people own half of the entire country. Um, and this is again because of, you know, thousands of years of history of, 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 uh, you know, crazy aristocracy. Mm-hmm. Um, and the idea was really to break up that huge concentration by giving people who live on the land uh, a, a, a right to actually buy it from the landowners. But recently this has been extended into urban areas. And what we've done in this report is to take that principle that's quite exciting in Scotland and try and roll it out across the rest of the UK, but also scale it up. Um, and so we have a potentially quite powerful mechanism to transfer ownership from, you know, private ownership in the uh, in the financialized market into common collective ownership in, in perpetuity. There's another mechanism which uh, is is quite interesting, which is called the Common Ground Trust. Yes, this one's particularly interesting. People should have their uh, antennas up on this one. I like this this concept a lot. Yeah, so the, the Common Ground Trust is is quite a quite a novel and, and new idea that, that this this report is really the the first place that this is been floated as an idea and the idea of the common ground trust is thinking about can we traditionally when we talk about land and housing certainly in the uk uh, and i guess in the us as well they come as a they come as a package the land underneath a property and the bricks and mortar that sit on it come as one when you buy and sell a property but actually in many cases what's actually driving the price the fluctuations of property particularly uh, when you get kind of booms and busts and bubbles uh, it's actually the value of the land underneath the house that is that is that is going up or down it's not necessarily the bricks and mortar on top and certainly in areas of very high demand in places like major cities places like london new york san francisco etc it is the land value that's making up the overwhelming value of of the property and so what the uh, common ground trust proposes to do is to gradually take the ownership of land that sits underneath the bricks and mortar into common ownership. So basically socialising the land underneath buildings so that people would then, if they wanted to, they could own the bricks and mortar, but they would pay a common ground rent to the, the a common trust, which they would pay in perpetuity. And that would kind of, uh, that would kill the, or at least significantly reduce the speculative dynamics of the housing market. And it would also make housing much, much more affordable because people would only need to, uh, you know, if you if you wanted to move somewhere or, or buy a place or whatever, you would only be paying or, or paying rent. You'd only be buying, sorry, the bricks and mortar, which as we've as I already said, is only actually a relatively small pr- proportion. And over time, you can, you can kind of build up the stock of public land ownership that sits underneath houses. Um, and this is one of the kind of non-reformers reforms that, that you kind of talked about, because obviously, if we were starting from scratch, if we could just have a blank slate and say how we're going to how we're going to devise society, our, our the system that we have today of private, predominantly private land ownership, highly financialized land market is obviously not the one you would go to. You would go to a system of of uh, most probably common ownership. But the fact that we're starting from a place where we are today, which is this system, we need to think: well, how what are the kind of reforms that we can introduce that will gradually set a kind of a ratcheting effect? in the direction of greater common and public ownership. And this is one of the mechanisms that we think has has the potential to do that. Of course, one of, the, one of the big difficulties, I think, with this whole area, which is why it's particularly, I think, one of the most challenging areas for a Labour government in the UK, is that Labour's narrative on the other areas of the economy has been a kind of, you know, uh, for the many, not the few. So 
you know, we should, all, all our policies, whether it's, for example, tax, income tax, the top 5% should pay more, everyone else shouldn't. And creating this, this narrative that's very much the majority against the elite. The problem when it comes to land and housing, at least in the UK, is that the beneficiaries of this hyper-financialized, uh, privatized housing market that we've had in recent decades hasn't just been the top one, two, three, four, or even five percent. Thatcher's housing revolution was very much about expanding home ownership into the middle classes. And so you have had a large chunk of population in the UK, 63% of households own their own home, who for whom their house is their biggest source of wealth, who have made quite significant windfall gains from the housing market in recent decades. And, you know, they tend to also be the people that turn out to vote. And so it's tricky. There's a very, very tricky balancing act to be done here of, you know, how do we how do we go about doing this while at the same time not crashing house prices and destroying the wealth of much of middle class Britain, which at the end of the day, the Labour Party needs to uh, needs to get their votes to, to win. And that's 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 at the heart, really, of. Both the attacks, the the hysterical attacks from the right wing press, because they know that this is a sensitive issue for people, but it's also at the heart, I think, of a, a cautiousness on the part of the Labour Party in this general area. And obviously, this report's a big step forward. They haven't adopted it as policy yet. They've been kind of clear to say this is just an informed discussion. But it's a very, very uh, difficult politics here that needs to be thought through quite carefully as to how you do this, what's the sequencing in such a way uh, so that you can. Uh, win the argument and win this at general election. That's right. This you just laid out quite quite well the rocks on which the <laughs> the 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 USS or the HMS, whichever be the case, socialism has run aground upon uh, for the past seventy five some odd years, and, and it's it's uh, that that legacy goes way back further in the United States to to the post war era, wherein these sort of sprawling suburbs were crafted. Via very careful and, and conscious, uh, you know, uh, government and public uh, public private sector policies, and there's there's just you know library shelves upon library shelves of books written about that process, how it went down, the racial effects of you know white flight from the cities following the the Second World War, the various housing subsidies and guarantees that were provided to mortgage holders. These things didn't happen by accident; they were planned as 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 Pretty much everything else in capitalism, by the way. Uh, so the you know, on the one hand, that's encouraging because if it was planned this way, it can be planned otherwise. On the other hand, there are some very sticky legacies there that form and inform people's consciousnesses in, in various ways, and not just their consciousness, not just the ideas in their head, but also the sort of material basis on which they they make and assess their livelihoods. As you mentioned in your Jacobin piece, the unmaking of the British working class. I'll link to that in the show notes, of course. Uh, you talk quite a bit about this, whew, this, this difficulty, this pitfall of the the property owning democracy that was so patiently crafted in the 20th century by uh, proponents of capitalism and uh, you know uh, markets and housing and land. Talk to us about the the British context there, with the, what what Thatcher was able to do in selling off these council homes and creating this this middle class that's tied to the value of their land and their houses. Yeah, so absolutely. So I think it's worth maybe just rewinding to the end of the Second World War as a good starting point. So at this point, you have a Labour government 
under Clement Attlee come into power in 1945, uh, quite a radical Labour government who, as one of their main priorities, alongside things like nationalisation of key industries, alongside things like creating the National Health Service, also undertook a quite significant programme of public house building, partly for returning soldiers, but also just generally to increase social welfare right across the country. They also introduced something quite significant, which is the uh, Town and Country Planning Act, which basically, although it kept land in private hands, it nationalised the right to development. And this was the birth of the UK's planning permission system, which we still have today, which is quite unique compared to other parts of the world. Whereas if you want, if you want to develop something in an area, you need to get permission from the local public authority before you can do that. Now, alongside other things like compulsory purchase powers and other things that, that, that I'll maybe come back to, this was obviously quite a worrying time for conservatives in Britain who you know, saw this encroaching socialism and really began to to worry about it and thought how can we actually what can we do to um to to kind of overturn this socialist advance in the country and the term property owning democracy it was, it was actually originally conceived of in the 1920s by um a guy called Dole Skelton he's actually a Scottish guy which is rather embarrassing for me um as a Scottish person but he came up with the idea that that basically as a a, a way to kind of counter the threat of revolution from you know Russia and the spread of socialism, what you need to do is uh, is to basically increase ownership among um, among the working classes. Now, Make all the peasants really... Is that right? You know, <laughs> st- stave yeah, off exactly. the revolution, the industrial revolution that way. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Now, originally, the idea wasn't actually to do with housing. It was originally to do with um, with enterprise. Um, but it wasn't long before the this kind of idea was picked up by uh, Anthony Eden, of course, a, a future prime minister, who, who seized on this idea of a property-owning democracy as you know, a key plank of uh, of hope for the Conservative Party. And that actually what, what they should be doing is increasing, seeking to increase homeownership and basically giving uh, giving the working classes a stake in private property, therefore a stake in capitalism, a stake in unearned wealth in order to basically erode socialist sentiment. So this was, uh, as you said before, with other policies, this was a very carefully thought out, carefully planned idea that by increasing private homeownership, you basically uh, uh, erode that sense of collective solidarity in communities that you get from public housing. You smash that sense of, of collectivism and replace it with a narrow individualism and a narrow sense of what your role in society is. And through over the, over the decades that followed, there were kind of little, as is often the case with big transformational policies, there were little kind of experiments that happened locally. So conservative-owned uh, Conservative-dominated councils in the UK began to kind of trial what what would become right to buy on a small scale, um, and and it saw that it was quite popular, and and over time it it kind of grew up the Conservative Party until it basically became accepted that this should be a national flagship Conservative policy. Could, could you could you explain um, right to buy for the audience exactly what that looks like for us? Because that's a kind of a silly concept for us, uh, and in the United States, I mean, hell, that's the one of the only rights that that uh, is completely. <laughs> You know, uninfringed upon is a right to buy. Uh, what does that mean in, in your context? Yeah, so right, right to buy was a radical piece of, of legislation which was introduced um, as, as part of the Thatcher government's first housing act. And what it did, it, it gave public housing tenants, so those that, that live in 
public housing or what we would call council housing, the legal right to purchase their homes from the public authority, but not only to purchase it from them, but also publish purchase it from them with a steep discount and a discount of up to 50%. So, and it, and it also came with a number of incentives to, to encourage people to, to buy a property. So including things like guaranteed mortgages. So it was a huge subsidized program of, of, of as a mass post program of housing privatization effectively where po- local authorities sold their housing stock to tenants but sold them at a huge discount so the state was really subsidizing this mass transfer of ownership from the public sector into private owners and this this policy although initially there was some resistance in some labor controlled areas it perhaps unsurprisingly proved immediately popular across the country it meant that uh, people could get, you know, own a property and only pay for half of what it was worth. And so over time, this had a radical effect on the balance of housing tenure in the UK, seeing huge amounts of the housing stock transfer from public ownership into private ownership. But not only that, obviously, the biggest effect was the effect that it had on the ideological sympathies on the uh, voting tendencies on the kind of spirit and character of communities across the country. You know, as I said, moving from a wor- moving from a world where you know you lived in a public housing estate, you had a mixture people from a mixture of different uh, classes and backgrounds living in that estate. You know, it wasn't uncommon back then to have people who would maybe be in the top ten percent of of the income spectrum living in public housing. But over time, uh, one of the most pernicious effects of of the right to buy policy was that. What you tended to find is that it was the people who could a most afford to buy their property, even with a steep discount, to do it. So it tended to be the the richer or more middle class people who did it, and it also tended to be the people who lived in the nicest houses in the public housing stock that chose to buy their house. And so what you had over time is this, what's been called residualization in the public housing sector, whereby the the houses that are left, the housing stock that's left, is the the stock of lowest quality. And it ends up being viewed as the only people, you know, who, who live there are, are, you know, people who are right at the bottom end of the income spectrum or, you know, are, are being in trouble with the law and all that kind of thing, rather than this public housing being, you know, universal good that, that's for everyone. And so as far as I'm concerned, uh, and I think, you know, many others are kind of look at right to buy as one of these absolutely pivotal policies of Thatcher's revolution and of the advance of neoliberalism in Britain. And one of the questions that really informed our report and, and my work generally is is thinking, well, what does a right to buy of the left look like? You know, what does a socialist right to buy look like? Which, you know, not only transforms housing provision, which of course it did, but actually, you know, also transforms uh, much more fundamentally uh, the dynamics of the political economy of, of the country that we live in. There's a great quote that you probably know uh, from Thatcher, which said, economics are the method, the object is to change the soul. And for me, right to buy is the kind of epitome of what that phrase is in practice. And I think the challenge for us is, you know, what does what is the equivalent for us on the left and how what does that look like and how can we go about achieving mm-hmm. it? That's right. That's right. Uh, I've had Joe Guine on the show recently. Uh, he and his co-author, Christine Berry, uh, wrote a fantastic summary of a lot of these arguments called People Get Ready, wherein they rehearse and uh, a lot of these types of debates and, and, and arguments here where we need to reverse engineer these uh, Thatcherite non-reformist reforms. Dare we call them that. Uh, they were laid out quite explicitly by a number of 
uh, Thatcher's key advisors. They explain them as, you know, what are the things that we can do now to make the battles of the future more winnable? And if that's not, you know, uh, a, a brilliant and succinct uh, summation of a non-reformist reform, I don't know what is. And it doesn't come from Andre Gortz, folks, or uh, Togliati. It comes from uh, Thatcherites, early Thatcherites uh, on the brink of the neoliberal revolution. And, and I think it's really fascinating. You're absolutely correct to emphasize this need to reverse engineer that process. What does that look like for the left? And I think uh, you and your co-authors have made a tremendous leap here in terms of maybe spelling that out. And yet it's just so intractable, isn't it? So let's talk a little bit about that because, you know, one of Corbyn's labor, you know, Corbyn's wing of the labor party, one of their, their great achievements is to focus on, you know, uh, contrary to the, uh, the not so proud tradition on the socialist left, uh, to focus on how do we build majorities rather than how do we just come up with the most radical sounding slogans that will alienate you know, the, the vast majority of society? How do we build majorities? How do we always focus relentlessly on the needs of the many? And as you've, as you've mentioned uh, previously, this is a difficult thing. And it seems that what we need to do is undermine this idea that it is uh, just or even sane in a, in a civilized society to, to have markets in land and, and housing, but particularly land with respect to these things. What are some of the ways that we can achieve that, that uh, we need to undermine this, this common sense, this knee-jerk feeling and opinion that, that of course, land and housing, particularly land, should be owned uh, privately in the hands of monopolies. How do we achieve this? Yeah, absolutely. The, I mean, the difficult thing, um, you know, the, the difficult thing is not so much in this area, you know, technically, you know, what do we, where do we want to get to? The, the question is, how do we actually get there in a way which can bring, you know, a large part of the population with us without crashing the economy? <laughs> because one of the, the key problems yeah. as uh, it's, it's, it's similar in the US, we have this um, hyper-financialized land and housing market is that the fortunes of the property market are heavily intertwined with the fortunes of the wider economy. And what you often find is that when house prices fall in the UK, uh, you actually see recessions follow. And there's a, there's, a, there's a close relationship between, you know, the health of the housing market and the health of the wider economy. And, you know, some people say, you know, why don't we just introduce, you know, X, Y, Z, you know, overnight, which will, you know, crash the housing market and, you know, uh, and all the rest of it. And the answer is because that would, a trigger a serious recession, which we know the people who suffer the most are those who can afford at least. But B also, you know, they're large, large. It's not just the kind of top one, two, three, four percent of people who would lose out from that. It would actually be large, large, the majority of the population. Um, and so, how do how do we do it? This is the kind of million dollar question. And for me, I think there are kind of a number of principles um, that I think. Are, are kind of common that that we that we have embedded in our work, but I'm, I'm sure also equally apply in the US and elsewhere. The first, and this is learning very much from uh, what Thatcher did. And the first thing I think is that um, although it can often sound trivial, and I don't want to overemphasize the importance of this, I do think that the kind of stories or narratives that we use matter quite a lot because obviously, what you know, Thatcher's property revolution didn't take place 
in some kind of vacuum. It was bound up in this much wider project of, uh, you know, how wealth's created and distributed in society. You know, everyone who works hard gets what they deserve, all this kind of stuff, feeding, you know, feeding in from the Milton Friedmans of the world, this kind of neoliberal rhetoric. And in, in, in the housing market, I think this fed into this idea, which is deeply, deeply rooted in this country, which is that wealth accumulated from owning property is normal and just. Uh, you know, that it's not in any way, you know, unearned or it's earned at the expense of someone else, that it's just almost like like a lot of people feel like it's some kind of entitlement. You know, you, you buy a property, that's what you're told to do. You know, it goes up at 10% a year and this is somehow, you know, this is somehow normal. Um, and this is obviously, you know, glaringly wrong. And I think what's interesting with land is that this is an area where if you go back to classical political economy, Basically, everyone agreed on this. You know, it's not just Marx and Marxists that, that thought this. You know, even the fathers of you know uh, of, of classical liberalism, people like Adam Smith and David Ricardo, also rec- also thought that you know you don't want a system where people can make large gains from just owning land. They they believed that because they thought people would that would undermine private property because people would see it as this you know deeply unfair and unjust system so they wanted to limit the ability of people to make lots of money from just owning land but they looked to mechanisms like tax uh, and and things like that but it wasn't really controversial that the idea that you know making lots of money from land or from simply owning land that was kind of like accepted across the board and we're really really far away from that today and so i think that we do need to we do need to and i think we're already you know, in the UK, there's been a lot of tra- a lot of ground on this that's been made. But you know, having a compelling narrative about how wealth is really created and distributed in society, uh, that's rooted in the the idea of power exploitation, etc., and putting uh, putting land ownership and property ownership in general at the centre of that. The second one, though, which is much more practical, I think, is the importance of kind of local experiments or trialing things at uh, experiments at the local level because. Often, again, these are, you know, people often overlook them as not being particularly systemic or, you know, marginal in their effect. But actually, if you look at some of the biggest transformational policies that have ever happened, at least in this country, most of them were influenced by or formed by experiments which took place at a much, much smaller level. So that's true of the NHS in this country. Uh, It's also true of right to buy. As I mentioned before, it was kind of trialled in small areas of the country under conservative controlled councils. And so that's why in the report, we do give quite a lot of focus on things like, uh, as I mentioned, community right to buy, things like community land trusts, things like cooperative housing projects, all of these different things should be supported and where possible scaled up. Uh, with public support, as well as the much more systemic, you know, policy top-down proposals. Apart from anything else, they 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 kind of show us what can and can't, can't doesn't work, but also it shows people that there 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 is an alternative, and so I think that's really really important. And the third one, which is particularly pertinent in the UK just now, given we're you know in the midst of Brexit and a constitutional crisis um, and all the rest of it, is this idea, the language of control. Um, uh, control over one's life because the the slogan that you know for for US listeners maybe don't know the the slogan that kind of won Brexit if you like was take back control um, the 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 Brexit side adopted the slogan which really resonated with lots of people across the country this idea that you know actually we've lost we don't have control over the things that are happening to us um, in our daily lives we've lost that control 
we maybe used to have more control in bygone eras. You know, we need to take it back. And the people we need to take it back from is, is you know, the European Union. Similarly, if you look at right to buy, one of the ways in which that was sold and why it was so popular in the UK is because the Thatcher government said to people that it, that it was a means to get greater control over your life. So they were saying, you know, if you live in public housing, you know, it was a very individualistic sense of control, but it was a sense that if you live in public housing, you know, you can't decorate your house, you can't paint your door, you can't do this stuff. You know, why don't you, you know, buy your home, we'll give you your home and you can have control over your own life. And that was very, very empowering. You know, I, you know, speak to people, lots of people regularly who aren't right wing by any stretch of the imagination, but who hand on heart say that right to buy was one of the best things that happened in their life. Because it gave them that first property, they then claimed the property market throughout their life, and that's where most of the wealth come from. And and so that, but originally it was that sense of control that sold it for them. And so I think that for us, if we're thinking about well, what is the kind of socialist alternative? That language um, of control is equally empowering, but it needs to be not of the kind of individualistic sense of control, but a collective one, particularly where you know lots of people are living in places, they're looking around and they're seeing, you know, they're feeling alienation dramatic alienation they're seeing private developers come in knock down things they're seeing gentrification they're seeing all this kind of stuff um that they feel like you know they don't have control over the decisions that are affecting their lives and so if we can tap into this collective form of control a kind of collective democratic form of control it says actually you know let's not leave this uh these decisions to the whims of the market let's democratize it in a collective fashion, then I think there's something that can be tapped into. And that that's fed into, again, some of the proposals in the Land for the Many report that I talked about, whether it's the uh, community right to buy, whether it's you know greater public housing, whether it's the Common Ground Trust. And then the final thing is, again, learning from the Thatcher revolution is that really these issues, important though they are, obviously can't be can't be pursued in, in isolation from other reforms. And when it comes to land, in particular, reforms from the housing market, because what made Thatcher's revolution particularly powerful wasn't just the stuff that we've talked about, right to buy and all the rest of it. It was the combination of the liberalisation of the financial sector, of giving people access to credit upon which secure credit, using land as collateral, that kind of put the whole process on, on steroids. And so if we're going to de-financialise the, the land and housing market. Um, we, we also need to be doing that hand in hand with thinking about how do we bring finance more generally under greater dem democratic control. And that's obviously an area which the Labour Party and the, the movement around it's also been doing some, some quite serious thinking about it. And so overall, I think these principles um, can, can help kind of guide us forward with a strategy for what does decommodifying land and housing actually look like um, what are the what are the principles we need to work by, and therefore what what are the policies that we can introduce now, which aren't necessarily going to you know magically take us to socialism overnight, but are the kind of stepping stones that will help us gradually move in that 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 direction of travel. Pardon the interruption, everybody, but this is the part of the program where I ask you to become one of the four hundred some odd patrons of DPS Media and become a subscriber today. Dead Planet Society is entirely funded by the generosity of our listeners and supporters. We cannot do this without you. The show may be free to listen to, but it is certainly not free to make. This requires a tremendous amount of hours, the bulk of my week. In fact, I do have some side hustles in order to make ends meet, but in an ideal world, I would be able to dedicate all of my days 
all of my week, my entire month, my entire life, folks, to the project of democratic socialism and education and organizing and working towards this transition to a socialist society. But I can't do that without your generous support. I know there are a lot of worthwhile projects out there. It seems like every podcast and every uh, every project out there needs your dollars. Uh, and I'm no different. So if you have learned anything at all from DPS, if you are financially able to do so, if you benefit from this show in any way, uh, if you like the politics and you, you'd like to see them thriving and spreading out into the world, uh, help to fund some of my ambitions to do that. Uh, I'd like to do more video. I would like to expand the website. I'd like to do more podcasts. But to be quite honest with you, we have to raise more money in order for me to be able to have the time to do that. So if you like this project and you want to see it grow, head over to www.patreon.com slash deadpundits. Become a patron today. Not only will you support the New Left Agenda, but you will get access to our weekly B-sides as well. And those folks... They're very good, so you're not going to want to miss those. Thanks again, all of the supporters, past and present. Back to the interview. I think that's absolutely spot on, that sort of holistic approach, uh, this, this multifaceted approach, wherein it's cer- we're certainly talking about land and housing, but it can't start or end there, or uh, we have to have a, a much more robust uh, policy platform with all of the sort of puzzle pieces fitting together at the right times and the right places for us to have this uh, transitional effect that we're all pushing for. And I think, you know, underlying what you just spelled out there is I think that there's a lot of room for us to sell people on this notion that sure, the housing market provided you and your family with some sense of stability. Perhaps it's it's in, in your life, the best thing that's ever happened to you. But you're assuming that that life and that possibility is, is, is the only possible world. It's the only possible outcome. And in reality, if you look on the face of it, this is really an impoverished idea of stability, isn't it? This idea that you, you, you buy a house, it's your nest egg, it's the foundation of your very survival. Because the housing market can be extraordinarily volatile, can't it? And what happens when you lose your home? Ask, ask thousands upon thousands of people, even in the U.S. alone, following the housing crisis in 2008, 2009. What kind of destitution does that, you know, does that leave you with? Uh, so it's a really, you know, people, you know, put their hand over their heart and, and swear to it. And, and uh, we're going to face a, a fierce opposition to some of these policies. But we have to really sell people on it. Like, you know, is this thing really as good? Is this American dream is what we call it here? Is, is it really all it's cracked up to be? Look at the statistics. Look at your own life. Look at the pressures that you face in paying your mortgage and facing down this, you know, these speculators that are fed by these markets and land and housing. I mean, is that is are you, are you really happy? Are you really that happy when you really think about it? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the interesting things that's changed in recent years uh, in the U- in the UK which has helped to bring this issue into the political spotlight a little more than it has been in the past is the a kind of intergenerational dynamic. Because what, what we've had is we've had a you know, the classic kind of baby boomer generation who've been the primary beneficiaries of this system, who were who were kind of young when Thatcher was introducing these reforms, who who rode the wave of rising house prices. You know, he, you know, people were earning more from their house than they were from, you know, their job for many, many years. And thinking that this is normal, that anyone can do it if they work hard enough, you know, who'd swallowed the whole rhetoric around Thatcherism, but who are now at the point where their kids are, 
you know, leaving home. And our, I've kind of started to realize that something's really not quite right. You know, their, their kids are, you know, living in London, paying 50% of their income in rent, or they're having to give their kids significant amounts of money in order to, to help them buy a home. So the, what's co- what they call it here, the bank of mum and dad, is now the ninth biggest mortgage lender in the whole country, bigger than lots of banks. It's parents giving their kids money. But I think that the penny has dropped. For, for people who previously were saying, you know, oh, you know, why, you know, this is, people aren't just aren't working hard enough. You know, I got a home, how can anyone else? That is kind of, I think it's, it's had an effect. And so I think that the question of how politically do we build support for this, I think it's about building a coalition of different people, including the growing but still minority amount of people who are trapped in a extremely deregulated, extremely insecure private rental market. The UK has one of the tenants, least tenant rights in the whole of Europe. People who are stuck there who are paying, you know, X amount of 50% of their income in rent, where there's no public housing for them. So there's obviously a, a large, that, that was historically quite small, but it's grown dramatically in recent decades. So aligning those people with people in public housing, which again is, is shrinking and which is, is, is really been neglected, with people who I think are these kind of, you know, socially conscious baby boomers who are, who, are, who are worried about this and who are thinking actually something really isn't right, something really needs to change. And I think that that's the kind of coalition that, that you kind of need to work with in order to try and um, build support for some of these radical changes. Because up until now, political parties on both Labour and the Tories, none of them have, have dared kind of diverge from this you could call it the consensus, the, the property-owning democracy consensus, which is the aim is to try and get as many people as possible owning their home, you know, by making it easier to get a mortgage, by subsidising them or whatever. All that stuff's kind of run out of steam and the social consequences of that now have been become clear and are becoming starker and starker by the day. And so I think there is a there is a growing consensus now on both political parties that the consensus of the past four decades isn't working and we need to do something different and the task i think for labor is to take a bold radical approach that actually says that these orthodoxies of the past four decades are finished and here's a kind of new here, here's our here's our new um you know our new equivalent of the property owning democracy mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that's right i think the, there's a real moment here where where we can strike when the iron is hot and uh, you're right to suggest that while that uh, that train may have been rolling smoothly for for the past several decades. Uh, it's run aground, and uh, the recent generations are are not enjoying uh, the same benefits. And uh, again, h- how happy are you out there, folks? <laughs> Is this really working for you? I, I think uh, most of us would agree that things are pretty tough in a, in a variety of ways. And it gives the left a tremendous opening if we're if if we have an eye to building majorities and tending to the real concerns. And, and needs of those majorities in a careful and nuanced sort of way. And again, you know, that doesn't in, include, you know, I have to keep insisting on this for my U.S. audience. This as a Corbinite yourself, you get it. it to, you know, in, in, in your, your heart of hearts, you totally understand and, and feel this, um, this imperative to, to align our policies and our strategies with the needs and concerns of the many. That's not such a knee-jerk reaction over here on the U.S. left. Um, the U.S. left is more oriented in a sort of theoretical direction, in an abstract direction, having been out of power and so far from power for so long. Uh, we more tend towards uh, sloganeering 
and uh, you know proclaiming our our sort of um, ideal abstract principles more so. So this is why I love to have people who are thinking about this uh, very carefully from a nonetheless principled socialist perspective. Because, uh, uh, you know, the, unfortunately, a lot of the people advising Sanders over here and some of the other Congress persons that we have that are, you know, avowed, self-avowed democratic socialists, a lot, a lot of those people come from the more progressive sectors. And while they are certainly allies and they come up with great policies in some cases, they really don't, they don't, how do I put this? They oftentimes fail to slant their policies in such a way that, say, the Thatcherites did in the late 70s and early 80s in such a way that, that, that you're talking about, sort of crafting these non-reformist reforms to set the stage to make future battles more winnable. I mean, this is why it's so important for socialists to do this. I'll step off my soapbox for a second. Final sort of uh, topic. You can definitely comment on that. But uh, let's talk more specifically before we before we uh, leave the A side and transition to the B side. I think the Common Ground Trust is something that is most immediately applicable to people in the United States in our in that context and and worldwide. This notion of community wealth building is catching on uh, certainly in the U.S. Building on from say the Preston model in the U.K. and some of the successes there. Talk to us about the Common Ground Trust. What is it? How does it work? And what kind of promise does it hold? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that uh, I would I would say that one of the areas where the Common Ground Trust is it's worth thinking about it or the context that it's worth thinking about it is another another crisis or another another downturn. And this is certainly something that we we were had one eye on in, in coming up with this policy. Obviously, last time around, um, when the, the financial crisis hit, particularly in the US, but but also in the UK, there were lots of people who found themselves, you know, underwater or were f- their homes being foreclosed or or whatever. And I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but what happened in many of these cases is you had big institutional investors and things like that come in and sweep up, uh, buy lots of property at you know cheap prices, who are now making lots and lots of money renting it out to people or or, or selling it for a quick buck. Um, and the Common Ground Trust it can be viewed in in one sense as an effective mechanism to intervene, not exclusively, it doesn't need to only do it in the next crisis, but certainly be one mechanism to intervene quite effectively at the next crisis. And, and basically, as I said before, the, the basic principle of the Common Ground Trust is a, a mechanism by which we can take ownership of the land that sits underneath houses into common ownership uh, rather than private ownership. Um, and basically, it would, be, it would do that by purchasing the land beneath the home and this could either be uh it could either be for example if there's a prospective buyer of a property say you know a normal couple who who actually you know don't have anything like the amount of money that they need to buy a property on the market buy the land and property who could go to the common ground trust and they could say to them oh hey we're looking to buy this place but obviously we can't afford the whole thing could you buy the land for us? We'll buy the bricks and mortar, and then we'll pay you a, a you know a ground rent in perpetuity. So, so that's one way that it could work, where whereby you're basically playing into an environment where housing is increasingly out of reach. It's unaffordable for large parts of the population, and therefore you have a, a public actor buying the land component of the property, which we've talked about before, is actually one of the most is often the most expensive part, and therefore socialising 
land in perpetuity, decommodifying it, taking it out of the hands of the speculative market instead, owning it for the common good. The other, the other way, though, as I mentioned before, is in a time of, in a time of crisis, whereby you have people who might own property, but who you know might see the value of the property be going down, or you know various different things happening, like happened last time. And at this point, you have the Common Ground Trust enter into enter into the market and buying up the land at prices and, and keeping it in common ownership and perpetuity, rather than what usually happens, where you have foreclosures you have often private speculators pick them up uh and they're and then you know keep it in keep it in private ownership or rent it out to others in future making waiting for the next boom to make gains from the other thing that we have that we did that we are thinking about though is that i mean lots of the reforms that we talk about in the report everything from tax reforms to things like reform of the financial sector to things like reform of the private rented sector to make it less easy for private landlords to make lots of money. There is the likelihood that were a Labour government to introduce all of these policies in relatively quick succession, that you could end up triggering house prices to, or the housing market anyway, to to slow down, let's say, or, 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 or you know, in the, in the kind of best case scenario to slow down. If you'd made, if, for example, you made the private rental market so unattractive overnight mm-hmm. through things like rent controls and things like that, which is what we propose, that you have private landlords suddenly exit the market, suddenly put their properties on the market, then it's quite conceivable that you can get a you can precipitate a slowdown or a you know a, a crash in house prices. And that's another kind of scenario whereby a mechanism like the Common Ground Trust can come into play. Um, because if there's lots, if there's lots of private landlords suddenly trying to sell, get out of the market at the same time, we we have a a public entity, public institution ready to sweep in and to buy those up, rather than again basically having a, a, a private house market spiraling downwards, ending up in the hands of some you know speculator who holds onto it and then you know waits on the boom again, and so th- this is another kind of scenario where we're thinking as a kind of as a kind of policy to be there if if and when there is an inevitable slowdown or a next housing housing crash whether that's through you know another financial crisis or whether indeed that's just through the response to a labor government which is possible you have an entity who's ready and willing to enter the market and to permanently bring land into into common ownership um, it's worth just talking about as well. One of the things that we've not talked about at all is the development side of things. Yes, so obviously yes, sure. we, we've we've largely been talking about existing housing market, the second-hand housing market. But there's also a huge problem in in the UK, at least, where development itself uh, is is now dominated almost entirely by uh, private developers who are op- who operate on what's called the speculative model. Another key element of Thatcher's reforms is that she uh, basically removed the state entirely from the provision of house building previously huge uh, in, in some periods the majority of, of houses that were built in the post-war era were public houses built by the public sector and, and rented out to people at uh, social rents Thatcher changed that completely the state withdrew from house building and basically left handed it over to private developers uh, which is hugely problematic for all kinds of reasons, but basically, private developers, obviously, their their primary goal is uh, maximizing returns to the shareholders. The way that they do that is only building quite nice four or five bedroom houses in rich areas, 
and they can't build too many houses at once in any area because they don't want to risk depressing house prices because that would then eat into their profits. So they're incentivized to basically trickle out very slowly houses into the market. And they're also incentivized to only build particular types of houses for a particular segment of the population rather than building the types of houses that people actually need in the places that need them. And so what we propose in the report, again, this is one of the probably the more radical parts of the report, is we basically propose to remove entirely private developers from the land market. And instead, we propose the creation of public, what we call public development corporations, whose role it would be to basically bring forward land, make sure land is available for development, crucially make sure that they can buy land if necessarily, if necessary by compulsory means at low cost um, in order that, that land can be bought forward cheaply for public housing programs. Because um, that's something that just 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 doesn't happen at the moment. There's a real, basically, a kind of bottleneck of land. land landlords don't want to sell unless they're compensated at sky-high prices. And they're not forced to sell, so they don't have to. Developers, when land becomes available and they get their hands on it, they're often incentivized, as I said before, to basically buy land and keep it in land banks um, and basically wait until the price goes up or wait until they can trickle out houses slowly. And so what we propose is to basically overturn that completely, um, eliminate these speculative developers from the land market completely and have a public public body led by the public interest managing land strategically for development in the public interest. So that's quite a, sh- that's quite a shift from the status quo in, in this country. And that's another area where the more, you know, I suppose people like lawyers and developers of that kind of industry have been, it's worried them quite a bit and they've been kind of thinking how they respond to it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's got to be terrifying for those people, those fat cats who have been, like I said, fattening themselves um, on off the sweat of the, the brows of the, the working class for so many decades. As my guest last week, Thomas Hanna likes to say, Thomas Hanna, the Democracy Collaborative uh, in, the, in, the, in the United Kingdom, I believe, is the way he phrased this. You've got the, the ideology, but not the power at the local level. In the United States, we have the power at the local level and not the ideology. And so, you know, <laughs> power, but, you know, localities here uh, and even states have tremendous power in terms of, de- uh, you know, determining the development regime in their in their cities and towns and counties and localities. And if that, you know, that that city council or that uh, county government uh, were to fall in, into our hands, uh, would would have a tremendous amount of power to to euthanize the developer class, to to steal a line from both you and your thinkers and uh, and uh, our boy Keynes as well. Uh, but uh, it seems that you guys have a, a workaround in terms of trying to put that development agenda back in the hands of the many. It's really interesting to to, to compare and contrast uh, the contexts in the across across the Atlantic in these Anglo sphere. That we've got going here, this transatlantic left that's that's building. Uh, a lot of really interesting stuff to think about. Uh, this this report is uh, widely available. It's free. I will, of course, link to that in the show notes. Land for the many changing the way our fundamental asset is used, owned, and governed. And uh, additionally, if you are interested in these politics and these policies, uh, which you should be, and you don't have to be an academic, you don't have to work at a think tank, you can just be a local activist who is trying to think about how to provide for the needs of not only yourself, but but the many in, in your locality. You should check out this book. Uh, it's co-authored by Laurie as well called Rethinking the Economics of Land and Housing. We're going to carry it over to the B side now. We're going to talk more in depth about these issues and much more explicitly about the 
latest crisis facing the UK and Europe and the world, uh, which is Brexit. Boris Johnson, of course, now being in power, new prime minister, uh, unelected as always, uh, in this crazy place without a constitution or or, or law, seemingly laws. Uh, he's now threatening to uh, dissolve parliament in order to force through this no-deal Brexit. So we're going to talk about some of the strategies to, to try to face down uh, the worst of that. Uh, this will certainly be a no-deal Brexit if it is to go through in the way that the Tories would like, uh, at least some of them would like, uh, would not be great for our efforts to democratize land and housing for the many. For sure, among many, many, many other things. So, Laurie McFarland, thanks again for joining us on DPS. Let's take it over to the B-side. Thanks for having me. And that concludes today's episode of DPS. Thanks again to Laurie McFarland. Everybody should check out his work, his book. We're going to take it over to the B-side now. We're going to talk about the Brexit debacle and the political crisis that they face over there and what the UK Labour Party could do in order to turn things around. And this is an incredibly important test case for the international left as a whole, particularly in the United States where we have the Bernie Sanders movement uh, perhaps waiting in the wings. I don't know. I'm optimistic these days that that movement can sweep into power and that we can really do some serious uh, good in the world. We can transition towards socialism, but we're going to need to get our heads right first. We're going to need to focus on the institutions and transforming those institutions in order to produce better outcomes. That's what our public ownership series has been all about over the past couple of months. I don't know, two, three, four months, perhaps. I've done six or seven episodes at this point. I'd say I probably started off with Hillary Wainwright. We talked about her latest book and some of her contributions. Uh, let's see. I don't want to miss anybody. We've talked with, of course, Joe Guinan. We talked with Thomas Hanna. Uh, both of those fellows are with the Democracy Collaborative and the Next System Project. I talked with Matt Lawrence, whose new think tank Commonwealth has a lot of really interesting and important and innovative ideas for a socialist transition. Talked with Kat Hobbs earlier in the month about her project We Own It, about how to transition to a robust form of public ownership. And several months ago, I talked to John McDonald's former economic advisor, James Meadway, about the economics of socialist transition. So if you guys haven't checked out those episodes, you really should. You should go back and check those out because we're going to keep plowing ahead here. I have a number of episodes uh, explicitly related to finance and socialist transition lined up. So we've got a lot coming. And if you've missed any of that, you should probably go back and first of all, flog yourself. Second of all, when you're done, when you've, when you've cleaned up all the blood and you've nursed your wounds from paying penance for missing DPS episodes, <laughs> go back and listen to all of those. Uh, this is an incredibly important topic, and I'm not just saying that because I, you know, because it's on my show. Yeah, it's important, and it's and it's under, it's underreported. Uh, we really need to up our game as a socialist left, particularly in the United States, around these topics. We need to get serious about what socialist transition is going to look like. And you guys are listeners of DPS. You enjoy my guests as much as I do, so I know that you take this stuff seriously as well. If you like what you hear here and you want to support this project, head over to patreon.com slash deadpundits. Your generous donations ensure that this emphasis on socialist transition, democratic socialism, and public ownership will continue and will be represented in the left media ecosystem. All right, enough out of me. 
This B-side is going to be dropping for patrons in a couple days' time. You guys aren't going to want to miss it. Until then, Dead Pundit, out. Out.